Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're looking at 2005's U.S. Open, where Roger picked up his sixth Grand Slam, Jordan status, if you will. But first... um. We haven't done this before, but I thought it might be kind of fun. There's a bit of topical stuff happening right now in the sport of tennis, and Roger Federer is um, either directly or indirectly involved. It's not a shock. He's If you talk about tennis, he's obviously going to come up as part of the headline. There was an article in the New York Times, Brian, about merging the men's and women's tour. Roger and Rafa are at the forefront of this. I thought maybe it would be instructive, at least for me, if you could talk about the way it is now and then maybe talk about the pros and cons of a proposed merger. So right now, the two tours are basically, it's like imagining two universes that will do their own orbit or planets that orbit, but then occasionally they come into alignment. And where they come into alignment are some of the bigger events, uh, you know, the Indian Wells of the world, and of course the four majors. But outside of that, they exist in very much their own universes. So to the outsider, you're thinking, okay, they're playing the same sport, oftentimes at the same place. Why aren't they merging and sharing resources and you know, working on these things together? That's a very good question. The answer is it's because it's complicated, like everything else. Um, remember, open era tennis only started a little over 50 years ago in 1968. So you had the men doing their thing and with Billie Jean King and the women with what they had to do to get any sort of recognition, they had the sponsorship from Virginia Slims, the original nine. They were some of the biggest pioneers we've seen in sports over the last couple of decades. So they built their own thing, but the men didn't have, you know, the ATP was its own body as well. So they exist essentially in unison, unison, they exist, parallel to each other right now, and they sometimes intersect. Um, benefits to merging, I think we just went over them. It's These are the best athletes in the world, the best tennis players in the world, so why not lift everybody up and give a platform not just to the best men or not just to the best women, but put everybody in the same tent, and let's see how you could do that. And Where you could start with there is, you know, you look at scheduling, even these joint events, um, there's always going to be criticism, oftentimes valid, that the women get some short shrift when it comes to the schedules in terms of the court assignments. We talked about that before, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, we talked about uh, the defending champion always opens uh, Wimbledon center court the following year, but it's always the defending men's champion, never the defending women's Wimbledon champion. Um, you know, the, the media platforms, both of these, especially the men, and I I do some work for the ATP, so I should reveal my conflicts of interest here, but the ATP has a very robust uh, TV offering, uh, tennis TV, uh, ATP tennis radio. They've got a whole multimedia offering, and they got out in front of where now you're seeing more and more sports trying to offer their own over-the-top services like that. Um, But the WTA, they are no longer on tennis TV, so they have their own digital platform. 
it does it's newer so it doesn't have the reach that the atp does so hey why not merge those two things together you charge people one price i'm sure it would be higher than what you would pay for tennis tv but within reason and it's more money coming in now why don't people want to do this well i, I think sexism is is a factor here and not saying it's sexism at the highest, highest levels, the leadership, uh, the new ATP uh, CEO has said that this is something he'd certainly be into exploring. But Andy Murray had uh, interesting comments in an interview about this, and he's been at the forefront for some time of equality with his mom, very active in tennis. And he was saying he's talked to, it's that middle class of men's players and not all of them, of course, but he said he's talked to some of them and they essentially are, they feel threatened, whereas their, their prize money that's at stake is, is pretty good. Now, they've got to win it to get that prize money, but he said there is a thought in some of these guys that if you are now introducing more people into this prize money pool, it's going to dilute it for the men, and that's the concern. You know, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Andy Murray, their bottom lines aren't going to be impacted by this, but if you're somebody who's, who's 50 in the world um, and lower, you're going to be thinking about these things, not, not, um, I'm not saying in a sexist way, but you're going to be thinking about things in a dollars and cents way. Now, Hey, competitive way. Yeah. And Hey, I'm in this sometimes strange business model. Now this business model's changing. How's this going to affect me? I, I think that's, that's a fair question. So I think we, now it's great to have this conversation, but as that New York times article mentioned, there's a lot of there's a lot that needs to be done to get from this is a nice conversation to have to a point where we actually have these two tours coming together. Really interesting comment, too, by Steve Simon. He's the chief of the WTA. And he said, you know, if this happens, this is not going to be an acquisition by the ATP because the ATP, um, their revenues are higher than the WTA. And I think that's a really great way to look at it. And it shouldn't be an acquisition by anybody. It should be you know, a true merger where it's a combination of the strengths of everybody to go forward together, especially in what's going to look like a, a very different world when we come out on the other side of this. So it's going to be very interesting to see if, you know, there is enough momentum right now to get something really going towards a possible merger. So the obvious benefits, it sounds like, is like in any business enterprise, right? Synergies, consolidation, and one of the pros that was kind of mentioned directly or indirectly in the article was aggregating assets, right? Competing with other leagues for fans, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Uh, partners, sponsors, broadcast, and data, right? So it just gives you a strength in numbers sort of uh, mentality. But my question, again, looking at it from a very lay perspective is, how would that be any different than now? Isn't I feel like the women and the men both get, especially at least with respect to the Grand Slams, they are on pretty equal footing. Uh, as a viewer, I'm not watching any fewer women's matches. I actually quite enjoy the women's matches in the Grand Slams. They're nice either tee-ups or follow-ups to the men's. So what, and, and you don't have to know the answer to this, I'm just asking, but what would be different than what's already happening? Well, because you just said it, those are the Grand Slams. That's eight weeks out of the year. And we've talked before, one of the other very unique things about tennis is, are the different numbers of governing bodies. There's not the NBA or the NFL. There are the ATP, the WTA, the ITF. They govern tennis internationally. We talked about Davis Cup. And then the four Grand Slams. Each of those are their own entity. So yeah, at the Grand Slams, they are on equal footing. And I'll 
correct you for saying they're nice. The women's matches are nice warm ups, or uh, you know, it, it's great to watch tennis because yeah, yeah, a lot of times that's what I mean. Women's matches are better yeah. at times. You know, it's, the rallies are longer. The intensity is better in many instances, and there's always new faces on the women's side. So yeah, and. In the minds of some people, that that has been a problem for the women's game, where you don't have, you know, outside of the the Serenas of the world, mm. there's that not been that consistent top of the sport presence. But the other side of that argument is we've seen the men's. It's cyclical. We've seen the men's game like that in the pre when Federer was uh, kind of fine tuning himself in the early part of this century. You know, it was a lot of different winners. I think we talked about that in our first episode, the 2003 Wimbledon. I forget the exact number, but then it was like 10 winners over the last uh, three years at majors. That's that's a lot. And you see similar trends to that in the women's game. So to go back to what you were saying, though, it's you look at the two tours in the other 45, 40 weeks of the year where they can get on more of an equal footing. Um, think about sponsorships. You know, tennis is such a sponsor-driven sport. If this car company wants to sponsor a men's tournament, they're going to put a lot of money in that men's tournament, uh, or vice versa. You know, Porsche has a huge tournament for the, it's one of the women's top tournaments in Stuttgart in Germany, and it's a women's only tournament. So maybe that changes in the future if Porsche continue. I mean, Porsche has a big sponsorship deal with the WTA, but you think about those sponsorship dollars, which are very likely going to be a little bit more scarce, at least in the immediate uh, short term after this pandemic recedes a bit, and you figure out how do we get more of those dollars flowing into our sport? Well, maybe putting our assets together is the best way to do that. Uh, prediction hat, Brian, do you foresee a future especially now that there's going to be a lot more homebodies in general as a matter of cultural choice. Do you foresee a situation where tennis is kind of like the NBA, where you have matches happening on Thursday nights, on Monday nights, on Friday nights, and they have these sort of uh, televised experiences, if you will? Would merging take it one step closer to that? That's a good question. I don't see that happening immediately in terms of the current, I don't see that happening in terms of the current model. Um, if it got to a point where th this is, you know, pretty cataclysmic stuff we're talking about where, you know, there was significantly less travel and events, then if you're going to play, if you're going to place everybody essentially on like a soundstage or uh, in a, on a court somewhere, yeah, then you would tailor that more towards let's generate eyeballs. But then you're thinking, okay, tennis, global sport. Yeah, Thursday night in the U.S. is uh, the middle of the night in Europe on Friday morning. So who's going to be watching that? I think tennis, the global aspect, helps it in many ways, but it also prevents it from maybe doing things like that just because it's so spread out and it's so global. Yeah, you're going to target where the most eyeballs are. You know, The WTA has made a big push into Asia over the last 10 years. Um, that's really changed the face of the WTA. It's changed the dollars and cents. Um, so I don't see it happening quite to that degree, but you know, did I think we'd be sitting here now going on two months without tennis? Uh, no, I didn't think of that either. So stranger things have happened. For sure. Well said. A couple more topical things I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, Novak Djokovic trained and a bunch of people freaked out about it. Um, he was, he's living in Spain apparently. And I only know this because he's doing these really cool Instagram TV sort of conversations. And he's talking about where he is at and what he's up to. Um, basically what's happening right now is that certain players are getting out and hitting. 
and they're following guidelines in their jurisdictions, or they might be a little lax on the guidelines in their jurisdictions. Um, there was a fairness component to this that I wrote down. Maybe just kind of comment on what's happening and tell me whether or not this plays into a certain unfair advantage situation where certain players are getting in their reps and others are actually being very sort of rigorous in their at-home sheltering. Well, it's tough to police it directly because once again, how global tennis is. So everybody's spread out in places where there are different regulations in place. That That's one aspect of it. Um, it's also tough to police because, you know, uh, Rafael Nadal, for example, has a tennis academy. Um, so there's plenty of courts there. Now, if you're, you know, Roger but he Federer did not, post, to cut you off real quick. Right. He did and not I actually, want to get to Nadal in a second because he had a lot to say about this, but it, it depends on what, what you have. I mean, if you have a court in your backyard, sure, you can go out and you can play and you have that. We're seeing that now with the NBA where a lot of players, you know, if you play for using a local example for me, the Brooklyn Nets and you live in Brooklyn, uh, they cut down the basketball nets throughout the city. You probably don't have a basketball court in your Brooklyn apartment. Uh, What are the nets going to do? So I think it'll be when tennis comes back, you will have a gradual buildup um, and you're going to know, okay, I'm going to play at this point. So I've got to start training there. So is it fair? Uh, I guess not, but this whole situation is not fair. Um, and I think that that is something that a lot of players have considered. And something else that I, I mentioned, Rafael Nadal, he was pretty uh, heartfelt in talking about, you know, he's struggled to find the motivation to do this because you mm. don't know. It's not like you have a target that, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to put a good training block in here for the, uh, you know, the European clay season because if there is a European clay season, it's going to be in the fall and it's going to look very different. You don't know what you're training for right now. So there's probably not much benefit to doing that. There's certainly benefit to, to staying in shape and trying to stay as sharp as possible, but that fine tuning stuff, eh, I, I don't think that it, it has much of a benefit right now. To follow up on your point, I heard uh, Djokovic saying how uh, the hardest thing for him has been usually their schedules are so dialed in and they know exactly what they're supposed to be eating, what they're supposed to be working on, what part of their game they're supposed to be focusing on. And right now that's all in flux to your point about Nadal. I did read that Nadal is working out at a friend's private court, which made me wonder why doesn't he have a court of his own? But that's beside the point. He could be in a place where he doesn't perhaps. Yeah, I think it's more that he. I, I'm I'm sure Nadal's well looked after in terms of his. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure he's got a court in his yard, right? Yes. I mean, it's a given. Okay, final bit of what's going on in the world of tennis right now. Um, I read about this thing called the Player Relief Fund. Uh, the problem, of course, is that low level players, middle class players, if you will, are leaving the sport because they can't afford to train. Uh, which is kind of an interesting problem, something that you would not think about as a casual fan. The solution is that Novak Djokovic and I believe a few others set up or backed what is called this player relief fund. The issue, if you will, is that it's not backed by Roger or Rafa, but 80 out of the top 100 players signed a letter of commitment. What are your thoughts on this development? Well, I think you, you might be mixing up two different things. So the, the player relief fund is a, a pretty uniform system. It's the ATP, the WTA, with those governing bodies we just talked about, the ITF, 
and the four Grand Slams. They're all going to put together uh, $6 million. Uh, I think that's U.S. dollars. And it's going to go towards players who are affected. And the ATP and WTA are going to be in charge of administering this. They had a number for about how many? They say about 800 singles and doubles players. They're going to consider their rankings, their previous prize money earnings, and um, you know, just basically who needs that money, and they'll figure out how to allocate that. I think what you were talking about is a letter about actually pledging more of a GoFundMe setup, uh, pledging donations from some of these top 100 players. And that brings up a bunch of different gray areas in terms of, okay, if I'm at this point, you know, the way it's set up, this this criteria where I'm expected to donate a certain amount of money, but if this guy's one ranking position below me, he's going to get money, but I'm one spot ahead of him. Now I'm giving money. Like this is a tough, uh, you know, it's tough to be asking workers, asking anybody to be giving some of their money to somebody else. But this at times is where tennis can, it's just a tricky spot with that. There's no single unifying league covering everything like an, an NBA contract, let's say with your team, is going to be paid out. It might be adjusted. The NBA is working on that, of course, but it's a different spot. Yeah, that's that's kind of the the gist of my thought on the whole thing is that there's no there's no safety net, if you will, in this sport as there as there might be versions of one in other sports. Let's go from 2020, Brian, uh, the current situation and. Part of the excitement and enthusiasm for this podcast is we get to exist in the past because existing in the presence is not the greatest at all points of the day. Um, We're going to go back to 2005. After Wimbledon, which is what we covered last week, Roger won the Cincinnati Masters. He faced Roddick again in the final. Roddick was bested, 6-3-7-5. The only person that gave him any real trouble in that tournament was James Blake in the first round of all rounds probably because it was his first match since Wimbledon, I read. James Blake's going to be a storyline in our podcast today a little bit later. Any thoughts or comments on the build-up to the U.S. Open that you had? Yeah, it, it is a bit different this year for Roger because he had a foot issue, so he skipped Canada. We talk about the Masters tournaments, those big tournaments. The, they're the showpieces for the ATP, of course, and he was not able to play Canada. That's the Masters that leads right into Cincinnati. They go back-to-back as the build-up into the U.S. Open. So he wasn't able to play Canada, goes to Cincinnati, beats Blake, as you mentioned, handles Roddick again. At that point, he is now 38-1 on hard courts going into the U.S. Open in 2005. That's a crazy number. Also, some history, because we're using that word more and more now here with Roger as we hit the back half of 2005. He becomes the first player to win four Masters titles in a season. Now, the Masters concept is not that old at that point, only about 15 years, but some great players, Lendl, Sampras, Becker, um, Agassi, they had never won four Masters in a year, and Roger's done it with a couple to spare. So he is, okay, a little bit of an abbreviated buildup, but he's got that title in Cincinnati, and that's at this point with the way he's playing and the way the fields are looking, that's a pretty good warm-up for the U.S. Open. Coming into the U.S. Open, Roger was 83 consecutive weeks at number one at this point. And this is that all-time record that we talked about a while back. We're 83 weeks into it now, 38-1, and one, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with six titles. That one loss, of course, was to Safin in the Australian Open final. Uh, pretty incredible when you think about it. Agassi's last appearance in a Grand Slam final is this U.S. Open. 
I said that we would deep dive him this episode, but I, I'm going to renege on that. Uh, he does play again in 2006, and I was at a couple of those matches, so I think the timing is better for a full Agassi deep dive, though I did spend some time in his book, Brian, and I'm going to be reading from it a bit later to set us up for the actual final. Okay. The seeds. Roger was one. Nadal is two. Uh, so he is creeping. He's got one Grand Slam final under his belt at this point, the French Open. Hewitt is three, Roddick four, then Safin, who did not play in this tournament, Davidenko, Agassi, Coria, Gaudio, and Puerta to round out the top 10. Federer's path. I'm going to make up for my mistake a couple episodes ago, thanks to your schooling, I should say. The first round he played, Minar, 6-1, 6-1, 6-1. Can I interject on that match? Because it, it was, I was looking back at some of the more granular details of this tournament. And we talk about Wimbledon opening with the defending champion playing it at 1 p.m. Um, the following year on the Monday opening center court. So Federer opened Ash Stadium in 2005 as the defending champion, but he did it in the 11 a.m. match. Or I think it, it's noon they used to start in Ash. Maybe it was 11, now it's noon. But that's not a prime time match. It's, as it goes in Ash, it's different now that they have two courts with roofs. But it would always be the first match on Ash is a, okay, it's, it's big names, but it's not quite at the level of the next two, which are going to be showpiece matches during the day. Then they clear everybody out, bring them back for the night session. All the stars come out. Anna Wintour's sitting there. and There's all the songs and there's a ceremony before the opening night. Um, so Federer actually commented on that after... So yeah, it was a little, I didn't expect to be playing at 11 a.m., but as he said, it was nice to actually uh, be on schedule because that's something else at a Grand Slam where if you could be third match on and you could be on the court anywhere from, uh, you could take the court anywhere from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. based on weather, how the other matches go. So you got a little bit of uh, regularity with the schedule, but I, I think Federer also probably knew he would get plenty of primetime opportunities going forward. Oh, for sure. He definitely got the primetime opportunities. But to your point, you just brought up an interesting thought I had. Uh, the 6-1-6-1-6-1, did that have a little something to do with not getting the primetime slot? Did he take it out on his opponent a little bit? Uh, no, I don't think he took it out as much as that's just where he was, and that's where Evo Minar was at that point. Okay, second round. Fabrice Santoro, of course... The player you gave me a much-deserved schooling on, I did spend an inordinate amount of time, as you know I want to do on any podcast project that I undertake, uh, to watch his highlight reel and then some. Uh, this is, of course, the French player from Tahiti. We're going to focus on this match in particular. Uh, it was 7-5, Roger, but that was quite a showing by the 32-year-old player who you mentioned, uh, I have a couple of sound bites or uh, quotables from John McEnroe, who was equally hyped on Fabrice Santoro. He was ribbed a little for overhyping the match because it was predicted to be a quick Roger Federer drubbing. But he says, quote, no power, but a lot of guile on Fabrice Santoro. And then he called him a Gauguin on the court, who's a painter, right? A uh, Renaissance painter, if I'm not mistaken. No, he was post-Renaissance. Post-Renaissance. And then he said an interesting thing that I want to get your thought on. He said that Safin detests 
outplaying Santoro. Uh, uh, Santoro's seven and two lifetime against Safin. But can you explain that? Do you have any context for that? Yeah, because of, you know, when you think of guile, you don't think of Marat Safin. So if you're Marat Safin, who your game is not built on guile, to play somebody who relies on that style and is just, it's annoying and it's going to really bother you and it's going to make you work that extra bit harder. You're just never going to be comfortable on the court. He's never going to be out of a point. It's just a pain to go up against somebody who plays that way. So my one word uh, sort of thought on Fabrice Santoro after watching all these matches, besides the obvious, where has he been all my life? I actually never really got into his game, clearly, as I overlooked it a, a couple episodes ago. But um, if you remember the Princess Bride and Inigo Montoya or the Dread Pirate, uh, he reminded me of them fencing. That's the kind of player that he was. It was very artful, very elegant. Um, Jim Courier called him a magician several times in front of Roger Federer. And I kind of got the feel from Roger Federer that I'm the magician. Why do you keep calling this guy the magician? Um, but you're absolutely accurate. Whoever coined that term, uh, it is a dead accurate moniker. I'm going to share some moments from this match with you. And I just want you to watch and react. Let me do my tech setup here. One second. Make sure you can see. Do you see him? Yep. Okay. Uh, the comment that I have here is, uh, it's a Fabrice Santoro move early in the match to kind of get the crowd cheering for him a little. Yeah, so that's Santoro running, uh, Federer-esque essentially, running away from the net, back to the net. He's behind the baseline. He hits a tweener sticks it absolutely on the line. It's very similar to what Federer did to Djokovic in the 2009 semifinals to set up a match point. Um, it wasn't a clean winner, but Federer couldn't get it back. And it's the kind of shot where, painting the picture here at the U.S. Open, you're going to get, this is a second round match. You're going to get a lot of people coming out at night. Oh, that Roger Federer guy, he's really good. I don't know much about Santoro most likely, but oh, wow, that was really fun. And it all of a sudden gets everybody into the match. It's that kind of shot, that kind of point. It's only the Santoro's first service game, second game of the match when he plays that. And again, that's what he's capable of doing. Totally. I love that Roger kicked the ball after he <laughs> missed it. It's a great little sort of tantrum. Uh, won the crowd early. So Federer goes up 5-1 in the first set. But Santoro wins the next four games in a row to get it to 5-5. Here is set point Federer. On the Santoro serve, too. And yeah, that's why Federer is going to win this match in straight sets. A spoiler alert. Apologies for that. Um, but it's... Play it one more time, please. Yeah. I love this backhand. It is so emphatic. Yeah, Santoro plays a shot. He plays a serve and volley. And it, it was well, it wasn't so much of a volley as it was. He just essentially bunted it back to Federer, but right into his wheelhouse. Santoro was in at net, and Federer is going to pass him all day from that position with the backhand. So it's it's clinical, and Federer has that look on his face as he goes to the towel and goes to the chair of yeah, I'm clocking in for the shift here, but I'm probably upset that I needed 12 games to win that opening set. But yeah, you're not going to beat me by doing things like that. Well said, Brian. Um, I 
took this clip in particular because that exact shot we're going to see later in the men's final. And it was almost like he was working it to perfection for this tournament. It was at a very critical moment in the final too. So, all right. 3-3 in the second. Santoro has three break points. There are five deuces. Two things to note from my side, and then I want to get your reaction. Federer's poise and Santoro's level, Brian, of going for broke. He knew this was his moment. Talk about being intellectually aware, which is an expression we're going to come back to as well with Agassi. Here's the play. Three break points. Also just notice how far back he's playing. Right. And you also notice what, you know, we're talking about John McEnroe. There's no power from Santoro. And Federer's able to use the reflexes there to just chase that down and absolutely sting that cross court at a very sharp angle. Um, yes. But that's the kind of point where you see the limitations of Santoro because a player with more power would have put that point away. He's unable to do it, and he lets Federer hang around. And when you start a sentence with he lets Federer hang around, it's probably going to end very badly for you. Yeah, look at how far back he is right there. That's incredible. Yeah, he's it's just, pure defense. He's, he's totally playing defense. Yeah, I see it. And there is no power. Right there, that was a, little, a lot of guile in that shot right there, though. Right, but Federer knows exactly where he's going with it. Yeah, yeah, beautiful stuff. Next incredible moment of the match, Santoro's down two set points. This actually made me respect him a lot and the crowd was just into him. Santoro's down two set points on his serve, and he comes back to win. Uh, third set, Santoro gets it to a tie break. Another impressive little accomplishment, if you will. Uh, he put it all out there on the court, Brian, but he came up short. Yeah, and that's what Santoro is. I remember, we'll talk about James Blake in a bit. Um, I think it was two years later. We, talk, we briefly talked about this when we first talked about Santoro. 2007, he was down two sets to love to Blake at night on Ash, first or second round. And he comes back, drags him into a fifth set. He's never giving anything away. When you are Fabrice Santoro and you have the, you know, the weapons that he has, which are not overwhelming power, you cannot afford to give a single point away. We see that, you know, at a different level. We talk about it with Leighton Hewitt a lot and different players like that. But going back to what our Fabrice Santoro tribute continues, and back to what you were saying with the Princess Bride analogy, I'll do you one better. The trophy they give to the men's champion at the French Open, Roland Garros, and it'll only appear once on this show, is called the Coupe des Musketeers. Uh, I'm probably botching the French, but it's named after back in the 1920s, post-war, the French Davis Cup team. They were known as the, the Musketeers. They were known for this like swashbuckling, very stylish uh, form of play, and that's who they named the trophy after. So I, I see that with Santoro. I'll give you trivia too, Vic. Um, one of these musketeers had the last name of a, uh, of a clothing company that's still worn today. Uh, can you guess this gentleman's last name? Mm. Because he invented uh, their signature article of clothing. Lacoste? Yes, Rene Lacoste. Yeah, that was well a total done. guess. Well done. I was thinking of, thinking of logos. You said clothing company twice, so I hung on that, and I immediately thought of Novak Djokovic, and then there you go. the cost came up. Couldn't have been Nike. Right. Uh, and so, process of elimination. No Adidas, friend. yeah. Okay, 
Goodbye, Fabrice Santoro, for now. Maybe he'll be back. Actually, it's not a spoiler. I, I think this is the last time they played in a Grand Slam, right? I don't know off the top of my head. That's a good question. Okay. Well, well, if he comes back, we'll definitely, no doubt, have clips. We've done him justice. I'm glad I educated you. Thank you. No, I truly, truly appreciate it. It's so ironic because in the third round, Roger played Olivier Rocas, and I was actually at this match, but I had no idea who he played before. And it's just, it's just strange. Had I been at that match, the, the Fabrice Santora match, we would be having a much different conversation. Rokas, besides being a top 40 player, was the shortest player on the tour at 5'5". He's also close friends with Roger. His highest ranking was 24. I don't have anything else on him. Do you? Uh, they won the Wimbledon Juniors together, Federer and Olivier Rokas. Um, so that, that's a cool feat. Um, cool thing that ties them together. And hey, you see it now with Diego Schwartzman. If you're five foot five and playing on the ATP tour for a decade, I, I tip my cap to you because that, that's impressive, especially as the game only got more and more physical. So to be able to play at that level for a long time, win a couple of titles, that's huge. Big time. Fourth round, he faced Kiefer again. Didn't give him as much trouble as he did in a previous tournament. Uh, won this one in four sets. Quarterfinal, my guy, Nalbandian, got picked apart. 6-2, Uh Roger won this quarterfinal in just over an hour and a half. True Federer Express mode. Nalbandian did break. The interesting thing I saw in this match was he broke Roger the very first game. Uh, just sort of like a change of tempo there. Like I'm this, it could have been a real match for a minute, but then that triggered something in Roger, and he just, you know, for lack of a better expression, he kind of steamrolled him. A guy who can hang with Roger for the most part. I think he's he's won a few tournaments subsequent to this tournament, so like he's he's in there in the mix. But this one, it was just it was it was a true clinic. Yeah, now Bandy was coming off. Um, he had had a a couple of four setters to get there. And we're going to talk about what he did to Federer later this year at the end of this episode. Um, but this, again, just shows that gulf between Federer and essentially everybody else. Where There's, there's that blowout factor. And now Bandy at this point is he was in this tournament seated 11. So he's just outside the top 10. He's very good. We saw him in the semifinals two years earlier. Andy Roddick had already lost in the first round. We should mention that for this 05 tournament. Yes, for sure. We're going to. Uh, and so now Bandian, yeah, good player, but Federer's just playing a different sport than pretty much everybody else right now. Semi-final, we've got Hewitt again. I got a question for you about this match. So it was 6-3, 7-6. The tiebreak, Roger won it 7-0. And then Hewitt comes back and wins the third set, 6-4. And then Roger finishes it out at 6-3. How did he pick himself up to come back and win the third set after that drubbing? That was kind of my question. Like, that is kind of what makes you respect Leighton Hewitt, if nothing else. That's Rusty as uh, he goes by and the Australians call him. And that's, he made a career out of doing things like that. And you give all the credit in the world to somebody like that. You know, you, this is a guy at that point in that match, he had lost eight straight matches to Federer. In that streak, he had only won two sets, just got schooled in a tiebreak, could easily go away. But no, it's, he's got enough respect for himself. He's a professional. It's the semifinals of a major. He's going to give it his best. 
And yeah, it got him into a fourth set and it gives you that respect, just that, that feeling that, okay, this wasn't my day, but you know, I went out swinging essentially and you give him all the credit in the world for that. Totally. Total respect for doing that. It's uh, very easy to check out. And we've talked about that too, about how certain players, no one will ever admit it, but Hewitt had 52 unforced errors for the match. And the tale of the tape on this one was that Federer wasn't actually playing particularly great. So those unforced errors kind of made all the difference, if you will, for Federer kind of breezing through. Well, the unforced errors could be a bit of a deceiving stat because... Tell me why. If you're going to be going for broke, you're going to have a lot of unforced errors. So if you're just going to be, you know, playing essentially low percentage shots or not a lot of margin, um, your unforced errors count is going to be high, but that also means your winner's count is probably going to be high. So you want to try to find your happy medium and figure out where it works for you, but you can't always look at the unforced errors as Mm. the defining stat that swung the match. Wow. Okay. See, I I always circle that. I always look at that. I mean, I always look at it. Don't get me wrong. It's an easy box score thing for me. I'm like, oh, oh, that explains it. That explains it. And they talk about it. Maybe it's the lame interview questions that they get post-match where they talk about unforced errors. And so there's this sort of illusion of importance, but I'm totally with you. It actually makes a lot of sense. I love what you said. If you have a lot of high, if you have a high unforced error count, that means you're going for broke on a lot of shots. Usually, and uh, there are times where it could mean, no, you just had a terrible day and that's why you lost the match, but it's not so black and white that the high unforced errors are the reason you lost. I'm with you. Okay, the final, Brian. Federer won it in four sets, 6-3-2-6-7-6-6-1. We're going to go back and forth on this, but I thought I'd read some pieces from Agassi's book about this open in particular. Let's hear from him and then let's break that down a little bit. Sound good? Sure. Before we do that, Vic, I want to jump in because this was the best tournament for American men in a long time. And I'm I'm struggling right now to think of another, uh, another major where American men have done so well on the whole. And yes. all that coming after Roddick lost in the first round. Going into this tournament, you would think, who's got the best chance of the Americans to win this thing? Well, you, you point to the guy who won it two years earlier in Andy Roddick. Loses in the first round to Gilles Muller. But at this tournament, you've got James Blake beating Nadal, uh, one of the career-making wins for Blake, because three, four years earlier, he was a big rising star. Uh, played a pretty heated match, a pretty controversial match down the years with with Hewitt, the year Hewitt won in 01. He lost that match. Blake is then, you know, making a name for himself, goes on in practice in 2004. So the year before this, breaks his neck um, on a net post in Italy, I think. Comes home, his father uh, passes away a few months later. Then he gets the shingles has to skip the 04 US Open. His broken neck had recovered, but the shingles had uh, downed him. He couldn't see. Then he comes out and beats Nadal in the US Open. He beat, I think, three As a wild play. card. Yeah. Blake was a wild card. Exactly. Nadal was ranked two. He beat Ruz- Greg Ruzdeski in the uh, first round. Then he beat Nadal. He also got Tommy Robredo and then beaten by Agassi in the quarterfinals. 
Also, this was the career-defining run for Robbie Ginepri, who we'll get to with Agassi in the semifinals. But Ginepri was a player who had a career year in 2005. Very nice American player. Not at the Roddick level, but he was in that class age-wise of James Blake, Andy Roddick, Marty Fish, who we've talked about before. The Bryan brothers are a couple of years older. But that generation of American players, Ginepri was certainly a member of it. Uh, But this was where he made his biggest run. I think... Four straight five-set matches, including the semifinal. Problem was he lost that semifinal to Agassi. Taylor Dent almost beat Hewitt at this tournament. He was a guy with a huge serve. This was his best run. So this was a really big tournament for American men. I was going to save this for later, but it fits nicely here. I was going to ask you about Donald Young. He was a wild card in this tournament as well. What happened to Donald Young and the promise of Donald Young, Brian? Yeah, that's... um, That's a tough one, Um, and it shows that there are no sure things. Um, He was somebody there was a lot of hype around. Uh, He's a lefty. People love watching lefties play tennis. The McEnroe comparison started, and it just, things didn't click. He was, he had some issues, you know, his his father, his parents were very involved uh, coaching him, and that works. Sometimes it doesn't work. His father now, I I should, as we sit here in, in 2020, uh, last year at the U.S. Open, one of the biggest runs on the women's side was was Taylor Townsend, who had a nice run through the tournament, and her coach is Donald Young Sr., Donald Young's father. She's known him for a really long time. So the Youngs certainly are still around the game. But uh, Donald Young, he's had some nice wins in his career. He's had some controversial moments. But yeah, it's just you don't know when things are going to turn out a certain way. That's why there are no sure things because – yeah, he's a guy who was getting hype going into this tournament as, wow, look out for that Donald Young because he could be the next big thing in American tennis. N- never really came to be. couple of other notable matches in this tournament before we go back to Agassi. Nel- Nelbandian beat Fernando Gonzalez, who we talked about last time, El Bombadero, 7-5-6-3-6-0. There's a battle of forehands for you those two guys. Um, and then Djokovic was in this tournament and he beat Monfils in five sets, Ancic in four, Verdasco in five. All solid players, especially at that particular point. Early Djokovic, Brian, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. So you weren't sure that Djokovic was, he didn't have the reputation that an Adal did at that point. Gail Monfils might've because he had almost won the junior grand slam the year before, but Djokovic was a guy who had a strong run at Wimbledon that year. He played a tough match in Australia against Safin, who went on to win the tournament. So you you were becoming aware of Djokovic. And what I would say this 2005 did was really pave the way for what was his big breakout season the following year in 2006. Definitely. Good stuff. Okay. I'm going to read some pieces from Agassiz Open and jump in at any time. And I'm doing it chronologically. So okay. uh, I took it from the port where he talked about entering the tournament, and then he kind of mentions each one of his opponents in step. This tournament, 05. This tournament, 05 U.S. Open. At the U.S. Open, I'm a novelty, I'm quoting him, a sideshow, a 35-year-old playing in a slam. It's my 20th year in a row at this tournament. Many of this year's players haven't been alive 20 years. I remember playing Connors and knocking him out of his 20th Open. On his first round opponent, Sabao, Agassi said, his jab was hitting and leaving marks on his jaw, so he never needed to use his haymaker. That was his comment on the first round opponent. Second round on Karlovich, 
says he was mesmerized by the height, said that the serve box for him was twice as large and the net a foot lower. And Karlovich, he said that he'd trade his height for Agassi's return game. On his third round opponent, Tomas Burdick, who we've talked about a little bit already, he called him a tennis player's player. Any thoughts on that? Um, do you have the sentence in front of you? That's it. I don't have the book with me. He spoke fondly of him. He called him a tennis player's player. Kind of like I was trying to analogize it to when a musician calls him a musician's musician. Yeah. it's Which to me sounds like, like a player that you would enjoy watching. Yeah, and Burdick, especially at this point, because remember Burdick the year before had beaten Federer at the Olympics yes. in, in Athens. So Burdick had this reputation, I think he's 20 here, as a uh as you know a rising star. And in and in many ways he was because his career eventually took him to, you know, the Wimbledon finals in the top 10. So I think it's just somebody who's who's enjoyable to watch. I you would not call Ivo Karlovich a tennis player's player. So maybe that contrast had something to do with there it. There you go. One thing he did say, I'm remembering the paraphrase uh following up on the Burdick match, he said that Burdick went for everything and he didn't need to. He hadn't learned. He was talking from like sort of like a professorial point of view. Mm-hmm. He hadn't yet learned the points you should just let go to save your body, to save your kind of economy of motion and he said at the net i wanted to tell him that but it wasn't my place yeah and i'm not sure burdick ever learned that no i mean he again got to the wimbledon final but he had a reputation as somebody who could get um you know those big moments uh that maybe there was that brief hesitation about some of those big moments just that killer instinct maybe not quite as sharp so maybe that was something that agassi picked up on early um I'm still fascinated, though. You mentioned Ivo Karlovich in the second round because Agassi coming into this tournament is being held together by you know chewing gum and bailing wire at this point. The back cortisone is bad. shots, yeah, cortisone shots. Often the back is bad. He had won Los Angeles that summer in the buildup, uh, but he had spent time off the tour, so he's really having to to pick his spots. Where am I going to be able to make an impact with the limited, you know? amount that I have in me Mm. to make a run. And of course, you're going to target the US Open. So to see Ivo Karlovich on a draw sheet has got to be a nightmare if you're Agassi with a back. Now, in a good way, you know the points aren't going to be long, but you're knowing that there's very minimal room for error on your own service game because you're looking at the serve coming in from this guy who's six foot 11, absolutely crushing the ball. He's the most aces of course, not at this time, but now, 15 years later, he's still active, by the way, over 40, the most aces of anyone in the history of the ATP tour. So just seeing that has got to be the nightmare, but Agassi is able to weather that storm. I'm going to have to do a Ivo Karlovich serve deep dive for next time. Uh, we can contextualize that a little bit because that's the ace count. He's the top acer in the game. Still is. Wow. That's an incredible statistic. Okay. On Xavier Meliz. His fourth round opponent, quote, he was more interested in the way his backhand looks than actually executing it. If you can't hit a backhand up the line, I'll dictate every point. He says it was almost as if he took his advice then, uh, because Malise wins the third set and he takes it to five sets. All that, Brian 
and he gets Blake in the quarterfinal. Uh, have some clips I'm going to show you in just a moment. He says the first two sets he got smothered. That's the word he used. Blake played inside the baseline on second serves from the very beginning of the match and never let up. Third set, he says he stopped thinking, that's Andre, and started feeling. His decisions became the product of instinct rather than logic. Great part. Going into the fifth, now that Blake has seen the benefits of my not thinking, he decides he's going to try it. As the fifth set unfolds, he turns off his brain. At last, after nearly three hours, we meet on equal terms. Such good writing. Getting to read this book again. Oh, it's beautiful. The way he's able to articulate these memories too. On the tiebreak, I've heard old timers say that the fifth set has nothing to do with tennis. It's true. The fifth set is about emotion and conditioning. Agassi was down 3-0, Brian, but got a match point at 6-5. Here's that clip. Blake saves match point. And James Blake, who had two serves that would have taken him through to the semifinals, is now staring down the barrel at a match point. Tough spot to be in. What a way to save it. Yeah, it's going for broke. Agassi writes about that shot, and he said that he saw it coming and that he never thought given where he was in the match Blake where he what he had seen he never thought that he would take that shot he wouldn't take that risk on match point but he did and he basically that it goes to the point about how he turned his brain off and that's why we were on equal footing for the first time in 3 hours this situation right here vic is a perfect example of what i i try to preach you know we talk about in in basketball you you can run out the clock Agassi's got a match point there. So he's up one basketball. You foul baseball. You don't throw him a strike. Blake hits an absolute screamer. And instead of going from a match point, now it's six all Agassi's got to win two more match, two more points in a row. And he knows that I just had this guy. You heard Mark Petchy say it uh, on the broadcast that night, you know, James Blake had a match point. Now he's staring down the barrel of one. And here we go. The shoes on the other foot, those swings. And that's what Agassi talks about with the fifth set is not really about tennis. It's being able to move those disasters out of your head as quickly as possible and get on to the next point. Well said. I'm going to show you Agassi's match point, but first I'm going to read what he said about it. It perfectly plays into the clip. Agassi's final word on the match. He took a huge gamble, a favor step in and hit a forehand thinking Blake would serve conservatively to his backhand. He said in the book, I've never been more intellectually aware, never felt the need to be more intellectually aware, and I take a certain intellectual pride in the finished product. I want to sign it. And what you're about to see is that where, obviously I'm going to let the shot speak for itself, but Notice what Agassi does right before the racket hits the ball. He's showing you the gamble that he's taking that he just described to you. 
done it. Yeah, he just absolutely steps in and crushes it. One of the most remarkable sporting occasions ever. That's a true statement. I'll play it again. His feet. It's the it's that just that subtle little gesture to give him positioning on a forehand winner. Right there. Yeah, he slides out wide just to line up and go for it. Um, yeah. Not a great serve by Blake. No. Um, but at that point, you know, you're you're trying to find anything that's still in the bucket to throw over the net. Um, but yeah, to set up like that and just rip it, it's somebody who, as he describes it well, he's intellectually aware. He thinks, you know, I I have this plan right now, and he executed it to absolute perfection. And then it's one of, you know, you one of the last great wins of his career. For sure. A beautiful moment in the book that he describes when he gets back to the Four Seasons. Uh, he's laying on the floor because, as you know, he didn't sleep in a bed. He slept on the floor next to Steffi, who was in the bed, and they were exchanging uh, dialogue. And, and she's like, you went places in that match. He's like, yeah, I went places. And he said it was one of the best nights of his life, uh, just laying there like a kid, right? Like, you know, when you win a game or if you, like, do something really cool, a self-congratulatory pat on your back. But it was an amazing, an amazing match, amazing tennis match. But all of that, Brian to face Roger Federer in the men's final. On Roger in this particular tournament, this is what Agassi had to say. Guy looks like Cary Grant. Almost wondered if he was going to play in an ascot and smoking jacket. We're a few years away from that. Yes, we are. That's what I said to myself too. Uh, Third set, they're one set apiece. Agassi breaks him and goes up 4-2. He's describing this in the book. He's about to go up 5-2. And then he says that Roger looked at him, and he was taken aback by the fact that Roger looked at him. So he looked back at Roger, meaning that the two warriors stared at each other, and he says, we locked eyes. And at that moment, he went to a place that I didn't recognize. And he goes to a tiebreak, and of course he wins. Uh, watch and react, Brian. This is two big back-to-back forehand Agassi winners, showing you maybe in fans that there could be a match here. The angle. Yeah. And he follows it up with this. Signature. And you see Federer how angry he is. He smacks that ball away because, you know, he that wasn't a great serve. And he's realizing, okay. Why wasn't it a great serve? He didn't actually, you know what? I take that back. It was, the serve is okay, but Agassi was, did ex- almost what he did to Blake on that match point where he anticipated, you might, you might even say guessed, he essentially was wheeling out wide, expecting Federer to go wide. So maybe Federer is angry at himself that, am I that predictable where he knows exactly where it's going? But Mm. even so, I mean, Andre wasn't able to really get fully set and blast that. He's still a little bit off balance, but he comes up with so much offense. So Federer is angry, but I don't know if it's angry that the serve wasn't as wide as he wanted it or or angry that he he got beat on, on that point. That was Agassi's highlight for the final. 
uh, by his own admission, he was out. He, he even says it in the book. Like it's just, there was no, I had nothing to left to give this guy. Uh, here's a great example of what he described in the book as Federer's defense to offense. Three one Agassi, second set. Federer six three in the opener. John McEnroe said it too, and he he knows a, a couple of things as well. Um, yeah, and if you're Agassi at that point where who knows what the back feels like, you see the scoreboard, you see you're playing the world number one, you are up a break though, but just to, there's no point off because yeah, defense to offense, he, he looks so easy doing it too. That transition game is mm. so fluid. We've talked about that before that there's just no stopping that. Third set tiebreak, the contrast, it's a tale of two, it's a tale of one tiebreak, but a beginning and an end. Agassi starts off very strong in the tiebreak, and then you're going to see what Federer does, and it is the same shot that we saw earlier in the tournament against Fabrice Santoro. The amazing thing with Agassi pulling the trigger there on that drop shot is he essentially knows that, you know, he talked about the match against, I think it was Melise, that, you know, Melise wasn't, if you can't hit the backhand down the line, I'm, essentially I'm going to win. Federer had plenty of chances to try to rip the backhand down the line, but he wasn't doing it. And you wonder if Andre thinks, okay, I, I got away with one or two there. I, I need to end this point one way or another. And so he goes for it, had Federer pinned back. And, you know, Roger playing that point a little bit more cautiously, and it worked out well for Andre. So we're at 6-1 in the tiebreak, set point on Agassi's serve. Clearly, Roger, Brian, did not appreciate that drop shot. <laughs> Here's the exclamation point, if you will. Yeah, that's just ruthless. And what's interesting to watch this and to listen to it, especially this match, I, I think it's probably safe to say this was the last time that Federer did not have the crowd behind him playing at the U.S. Open. Interesting. This 15. I, I can't think of because even the next year when he played Roddick in the final, I think Federer, you know, at that point, he's a two time champion. You know, Roddick is a bit outspoken that doesn't always endear him to a, to an American, a, a New York crowd. Um, so I, I don't, we'll get into that next time when we talk about that 06 U S open, but I think it, it might be safe to say this is the last time that Federer was not the, the guy on court at Ash stadium. And I think it's fair to say, Brian, that even if it was a crowd that was against him, any other player would take that version of against them uh, right. because it was still, it wasn't necessarily pro Roger, but it was appreciative Roger. Does that make sense? Like there's a lot of players that would love to have that kind of a negative crowd, if you will. Yeah. I mean, a tennis crowd, it's never going to be like, you know, you go play the, well, neither the Vegas Raiders, the Oakland Raiders deal with the black hole and they're yeah, yeah, throwing yeah. it's, it's tennis. And so that's not going to happen. Uh, but yes, I think a, not as enthusiastic Federer crowd in 2005 
is a dream for a lot of uh, current players. Yeah. Some standout tournament stats, Brian, if you have a thought on any of these. For the tournament, Agassi had 76 aces. Federer had 75. That was through seven matches. But Ivan Lubacic, who played just three matches, had 71 aces. WTF. That's a future Federer coach, Ivan Lubacic's game. That's just how he played. Wow. Played on the serve. But that's crazy. That's just the, that, you know, they played five more. They played four more full matches than he did. And he was right there with them on ace count. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, you see that now with, with John Isner and, and Riley Opelka, where these guys are averaging 30 aces in a match and 25 aces. And that's just how their game, we talked about that before, you know, your style is your style and that's their style. I'm trying to get the Evo Karlovich numbers from this U.S. Open where he played two matches. Um, Karlovich had 59 over two matches. Wow. Karlovich had 31 aces against Marty Fish in the first round, four sets, and then 28 against Agassi in three sets. That's the part, too. 28 aces over three sets. <laughs> nice little sidebar there. Roger won 44% of his return points to Agassi's 37%, which stood out to me, obviously, because Agassi was the game's best returner at the time. Do you put any stock into that? Um, yeah, I put stock into that as a telling stat because, yeah, you can be as good of a returner. And I, I might quibble with, at that time, Agassi being the game's best returner in his prime. He certainly was, but at this point, and especially going up against Federer, I'm not, I'm not sure he was, I don't think he was a better returner at that point than Federer. Uh, but those numbers are about what you would expect from two of the greatest returners of all time. Agassi was on the court just under two hours more than Federer in the tournament. Uh, Brian, if that was more even, would the match, would the outcome have been any different? Uh, no, because I think, once again, this is like what we talked about with the U.S. Open the year before, with even with Wimbledon this year in 2003. Federer is just at a different level, in a different plane than everybody else at this point. So I don't think that a full, maybe he gets another set, Agassi, but I just don't, I don't see anybody beating Federer in this form. Agassi, on the end and aftermath. Quote, I'm reminded how slight the margin can be on a tennis court, how narrow the space between greatness and mediocrity, fame and anonymity, happiness and despair. Says he lost to the Everest of the next generation. Though I don't mention Pete by name, he says, I have him uppermost in my mind when I tell reporters, it's real simple. Most people have a weakness. Federer has none. Context, Brian. Won 23 straight finals at this point. Something else no one had done. First to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open back-to-back. He gets a line like that from Andre Agassi. Two things, in addition to your context. What do you think Pete Sampras thought of that line at that point in Roger's career, number one? And number two, uh, do you think Agassi dials any of that back now, given the current triumvirate of greatness, if you will, in men's tennis? Dials back, though, that... Essentially that he's the GOAT. Um, 
Yeah, I think he probably does. He just, you know, and don't forget Angus, he coached Djokovic for a bit. Yeah, he probably says that, wow, all four of these guys, including Sampras there, you know, Djokovic, Nadal, Sampras, and Federer, they don't have real considerable weaknesses that you can try to get after and exploit. It's actually a great question. That's You just said something that just, do they, what are they, everybody has weaknesses. What are there? And maybe you can come back to this another, if you had to break down, if you were coaching a player, you got to hype up the player that, to feel like they can beat their opponent. There's, what are the weaknesses that each one of them have? What are their Achilles heels, if you will? Let's revisit it. Yeah, let's go back to that. I, I like that thought. I, I think it's a fun exercise because uh, I go back to the Jordan documentary again and Kobe Bryant saying, look, I know how to beat this guy one-on-one and it's psychological warfare. Uh, it's a beautiful thought. Context though, contextualize this win. We're six out of 20 now. What are your final thoughts? What is your Brian Clark stamp on this tournament? I think the stamp is you realize that we are looking at greatness. Six majors in a very, very short period of time. Going back to 2003, Wimbledon didn't get the US Open that year, but then wins three of the four in 04, two of the four in 05, where he has an absolutely dominant season. And you're realizing, as Agassi talks about him, as the Everest. Um, Agassi, of course, is writing that years later. But you, you can see why here, because the way he's playing, we heard it from Hewitt before uh, they, they met at Wimbledon that year in 2005, that I, I feel pretty good that I'm the second best player in the world right now, but the, the best is just that much better. And that's Federer. He's playing at a different level than everybody else. And we're going to see that, which is also the remarkable part for another year where he's at this other level. Nadal gets very close to that level consistently, let's say, in 2007. Um, Nadal's not, I mean, Nadal is, has a great 2006 as well, but Federer's 2006 is one of the greatest years of all time. And this is now building into that. We can look at more historical stats because we keep saying history. Once he gets to that U.S. Open semifinal, he is the uh, the fourth player to get to every slam semifinal in the same year. Um, we're going to see him do that in the finals down the road a bit. But just to do that, that's something that only four people had done, some elite company. So he is the cream of the crop right here. And he scarily shows no signs of letting that up. You can hear it in John McEnroe's commentary when we, when we listen to that. You can hear it in what the other players are saying about him, that they just know he is that much better than everybody else. I don't know if you saw this or if you knew this, but there was an interesting thing about how Tony Roach was coaching him for this tournament, but he had no plans to be at the tournament and he had no plans to be with him until the very end of the year. They were kind of a, a dial by coach type relationship, right. uh, which is utterly fascinating on multiple levels. But it just, to your point, he was, he was on Everest. When you're on Everest, it's lonely at the top, you know? Yeah. What are you going to tell me that I don't already know? kind of a thing, but not necessarily that that's the kind of coaching that he was looking for. Sometimes it seems like what I'm getting from the the dynamic of the coaches is that it's mostly just a space for the player. It's a communication space, if that makes any sense. Well, it's also about game planning and communication about that stuff. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, there is coaching certainly, but it's, and it's also at the tournament, it's a little bit different than, you know, what you might put in, in the block beforehand, but that, that relationship where he's not there, yeah, it sounds, you do see that in tennis where a coach will commit to, you know, X amount of weeks and they're not going to be uh, on tour or on tour week in, week out. 
they'll commit to a certain amount of weeks. You'll see them pop in. You'll see them pop off. You usually see them on for the major. So that is a bit unique. That's what was shocking about this. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, you want to preview next week for us and then we'll... Uh... Yeah, so interesting uh, conclusion to the year for Federer. So he goes and plays Davis Cup right after this. Solid win over Great Britain. No problem, really, just to make sure Switzerland stays in the world group. Yeah, so we talk about Nadal. We talk about Djokovic as these guys that are looming. Well, in, in Bangkok, Federer in the final meets a young guy named Andy Murray, who's playing in his first ATP final. Uh, it's their first time meeting. They'll get together in, in majors a couple of years from now, a, a few times in pretty memorable circumstances. So we'll have plenty of Andy Murray time later, but here's his first appearance in this show. Um, Federer does that, but then he gets hurt. He picks up some ligament damage. Uh, he was on crutches for a bit. We've talked a lot about one of his mm. more underrated strengths is his health, where he has not really had to deal until he got older with significant injuries. He was blessed with health throughout his prime, uh, he's had to deal with them a bit more over the last few years. So he is very touch and go he's, if he's going to play the, the year-end finals, plays, gets to the final, loses in a fifth set tiebreak to? Take a guess, Vic. Nadal? No. Right first letter of the last name, though. Now Bandian! Loses to David Nalbandian in Shanghai in the final, essentially on one leg. Um, but he finds a way just to get there. Hey, hey, Nalbandian plays on one leg too, bud. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he loses that to Nalbandian. Uh, played wild match. They played um, three tiebreak sets. Nalbandian wins the fifth set tiebreak. And what that win for Nalbandian did was it stopped Federer from having what I think would have tied him with McEnroe for the best winning percentage in a single year in history. Also ended a 35-match win streak, first loss since uh, beaten by Nadal at the French Open. But it puts a very tidy bow for Federer on what was, as we said, one of the greatest years of all time. He finished up with a record of 81-4 and with 11 titles, two slams. He's got the Masters wins. Just another year at the office for Federer, but it sets up an even better 2006. And what you did inadvertently was set up another notch on my case for David Nalbandian's Hall of Fame run, and that is he took off a record from Roger Federer. He's, yeah, that, okay, I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> he prevented Roger Federer from having a record. Uh, that's great stuff. What is our next Grand Slam? What is number seven? Do you know that off the top of your head? Australia the following year. Next couple of years, there's a lot of winning to be done by Roger Federer. We are now, though, I think at the point of the podcast where a lot of the main characters are in the storyline that will be with us pretty much through the end. I think a lot of the guys that we're going to see him, the cast of regular characters, right? The big four's been in included into the mix now, um, and there's going to be some other lower, earlier round match matches that we're going to see recurring, so... Look forward to comparing and contrasting those with you. Um, I'll see you next week. Have a good week and stay well, buddy. Thanks, Vic. You too.